Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spasciano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Dan. And just to let everybody know, today is a very historic day in professional wrestling. 59 years ago today is when Bruno San Martino defeated Buddy Rogers in 48 seconds to claim the WWF championship, and the rest is history. And then, But a little-known fact, exactly two years later, so 57 years ago today, Bruno and one of the main uh, subjects for tonight's discussion, Bill Watts, went at it in Madison Square Garden in a two out of three falls match. Can't go wrong with that history. Speaking of history, this is part two, Benny, this week. Last week, we, we talked a lot of history on territories. Why don't you tell everybody who we got on the line with us today? Once again, back for a return engagement. My brother from another mother, a senior writer, a senior writer at uh, ProWrestlingStories.com, Jim Phillips. Jim, welcome back to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Thank you once again, my brothers. It's good to be back to sit down and shoot the shit with y'all. I'm glad to be back. Thank you for having me. Now, as I mentioned, this is going to be part two of our Mid-South Wrestling Territory Talk. We've been having a lot of fun with these territory talks, but we're going to start with something a little different. Benny, this is something we haven't done on the show in a long time since we swore off most of the modern product, we're going to talk a little bit about mo uh, some modern news, news that's Current happening events. in the wrestling world today. Um, I, we're recording this on the 17th. This is May 17th. And there's two big stories that we're going to talk about. The first is, is news that just came out. It's near and dear to me being local. Um, WWE Monday Night Raw was in Norfolk, Virginia here yesterday. We're recording this on a Tuesday. They were in Norfolk yesterday. And during the show, uh, if the stories are to be believed from WWE's statements, both uh, Sasha Banks and Naomi, who at the time are the WWE Women's Tag Team Champions, uh, walked into John Laurinaitis' office, gave him the belts back, and uh, I think it's important that they actually called them belts, which kind of leads me to believe that this may be a, a real story, um, gave them the belts back, said, we're done, and left. And they were scrambling to put together a new show. Uh, the main event, obviously, the multi-woman main event that they were supposed to be in was canceled. And it's uh, gaining a lot of traction, uh, a lot of traction because the WWE, during the show, they acknowledged that it happened, uh, which I, is unheard of. Like, during Monday Night Raw, they, they hey, sorry, we had to change the main event. Naomi and uh, Sasha Banks went home. You know, kind of Austin, if you remember the story from years ago with Steve Austin, took their ball and went home, right. as Vince said. Um, and they released a statement confirming it, it happened. I'm thinking they may have tried to get ahead of this because the, the dirt sheets were reporting on it while Raw was still recording. Um, I'm going to start with you, Jim. Uh, you you had a uh, interesting take on this. What, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on this uh, developing story? I think is interesting enough that we start the hour talking about it. I saw it as soon as I woke up this morning. I always go through the news first of the day, and I posted about it. And throughout the day, there's kind of been two schools of thought. My view on it was, and this kind of actually ties in with a little bit of the wrestling territorial history stuff that we're talking about, because from the stories that, that I heard coming out of this thing, 
The ladies got to Raw. They found out what the stuff was supposed to be for the night. They didn't like it. They've tried to get something done about it and basically got told to, you know what I mean, just enjoy your position and be happy with what you got and where you're at. And this went on throughout the day, and then they finally, like you said, dropped the belts off and left. Now, I applauded this because they're protecting themselves and they're trying to protect their marketability and their gimmick. Now, a lot of people jump on that, and I know some people that will say, well, if the boss tells you to do this, you got to do that no matter what it is. I think the exact phrase I use is if the boss tells you to go shit in the corner, you're supposed to say, when do I squat? But these back in the old days, and Bruiser Brody was famous for this, and there's several other people that, that did as well. If people didn't like the way their gimmick was being presented, they protected themselves and they would just flat out not do business. And there's like the famous match, uh, Bruiser Luger in Florida with Alfonso as the ref in the cage when Bruiser Brody just flat wouldn't work with him. And there's other times whenever people wouldn't do business for whatever reason. But standing up for yourself and not just being a tool for the corporation, not only shows the corporation, hey, we're not going to put up with this, but it also shows your friends and peers who may be suffering through the same thing. Hey, you don't have to put up with this either. And yeah, you can stand up and say something about it. But like I said, that cuts both ways because I had friends who are on the independent scene that talk about how they've busted their teeth and, and busted their asses all over the country in territorial promotions just trying to get that big break and that maybe they're taking their position a little for granted and they should be happy with where they're at. Now, it all depends on how you fall in line with that. Personally, I'm not big on corporate one way or the other, and I don't know that if I thought I was being marginalized and underutilized and I had a world title belt, yeah, I think there might be some problems there. You know what I mean? And there might be creative rubbing the wrong way with my thoughts on things. So it's hard to crucify them for what they did. You got to kind of respect it a little bit, man. Absolutely. Well, the, uh, for, for those unaware fully the details of the story, the WWE narrative, the official narrative is, like I said, they kind of took their ball and went home. They quit. The story that's being reported, for lack of a better description, uh, Sasha and Naomi's version of events uh, at least by being quoted by sources close to them, whether it's them themselves. Again, I, I have to put that little caveat out there, and I'm going to read this for you. Uh, it notes, obviously, they were put thro literally thrown together as a tag team despite no build, uh, and also, which is a which was a point of contention when that happened a few months ago, because this was after they were both promised singles feuds going into Mania. But you, like you said, you know, you do business with what the boss tells you. They made it work. They got over. They put their heart and soul into the gimmick. Uh, they won the tag titles. They were told, hey, we're going to feature you, you two prominently. And apparently what set them off tonight, or excuse me, yesterday, was the original plan for the, the multi-woman match was that Naomi was slated to win by pinning Sasha Banks. And that was, uh, they both thought that was a terrible idea. Um, of course, the, the narrative was going to be Naomi was going to wrestle the Raw Women's Champion, who uh, is Bianca Belair, and Sasha was going to somehow be sent over to SmackDown. She was penciled in to be Ronda's next opponent, Ronda Rousey, the SmackDown Women's Champion. 
the whole time they were told we're going to keep you as tag champions, even though you're going to be on separate shows, separate programs, and you probably won't defend the tag titles for at least two, another month or two. Because at the pay-per-view, you're going to both have next pay-per-view, you're going to both have singles matches. Uh, they obviously they didn't like that. They uh, there's also rumblings that they weren't big fans of working with some of the women that were in the multi-person match, uh, the, laying the foundation for breaking the team up already. There was talk of like, uh, this is, this is stupid. You know, we don't like it. And it came to what you said is sometimes you got to think about what's best for yourself as the business. And they said, look, you're, you're going to destroy our characters and our team in one night. We're not doing this, you know, to, to quote the Jim Cornette. Thank you. Fuck you. Bye. Right. And, and they left Benny. What are your thoughts on this? I'm kind of with Jim. I mean, you know, on the one hand, <clears throat> these guys are getting paid a crap ton of money, and that's what most people is going to be their first reaction. You know, they're, they're making you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. Why can't they just do what the boss says? But you know, I I think any one of us, if we've been on a job and we feel like we're not being utilized to the best of our ability, we're going to be upset about that. I don't care how much money you're being paid. You you you, you take pride in what you do, and if you feel like that's not being utilized to the max. You're going to be upset. Let me take another angle from this, too, because that's what Dan had just lined, laid out was the first I had heard about the actual match, the way they wanted it to go. Unless they're building a storyline to split that team, there's no reason to have one of them go under to the other one in any kind of setting. They're, if they're a tag team and they're being pushed as a world tag team, why would you have them fight in any kind of match and have one beat the other unless there was a split story in place and let me also say this does this not show a total lack of interest by the company in those titles like they're just throwing people together not giving right. a crap what happens to it not really caring so like it's wwe is dropping the ball in so many ways and this goes right back to the territory we're talking about if WWE had even the table scraps of the storytelling ability that Bill Watts had in Mid-South, they would be 10 times better than what they are now. They are WWE right now is the drizzling shits. I'll call it, and I'll be the first one to say it, and I, I don't really apologize if it offends anybody because it's the truth. But Bill Watts is one of the greatest storytellers in wrestling history, long-term storytellers, and these guys, they can't even keep a tag team together. Exactly. And you also have to figure you, you talked about not caring about the belts. Neither of them were going to win these singles titles. So you're going to take your your tag team champions, have a uh, basically have them fight each other and then both go on to lose singles feuds, then put them back together with no heat or anything to have them now be tag champs again. I mean, imagine that, right, that, right. that belt anything that does nothing but, for that belt. Go, go, go look at, take, you, you keep going back to Mid-South. Look at, imagine wa walking into the producers meeting and saying, all right, here's what's going to happen. Multi-man match. Uh, we're going to have Bobby Eaton's going to go, going to go over Condry in the multi-man match. They're both going to challenge for in singles titles. And then two months from now, we're going to put them back together and they're going to, they're going to have a tag team against the rock and roll express. Like no one's going to care about that match. Cause you've now established they're both losers and and their their team cohesion co cohesion is gone. It, it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's sad the way. Yeah, one of the many reasons I try not to watch the current product. <laughs> I, Benny, like I said at the at the, the top, Benny and I we swore off uh, 
we were we used to do periodic segments where we would talk about big pay-per-views or at least the occasional you know moment um and it got to the point where we basically said going into the show like look we're done this the the modern i mean other than the occasional pitch out to uh aw because um our our sponsors connection to Adam Page, your champion, and some of the great matches he's had recently. We don't really talk much about the modern product for that reason. Is is it tends to be lousy? Uh, but speaking of of modern, um, the young up and comers, the young upstarts, as you will, a video went viral a few weeks back of Ric Flair uh, working out in the ring with Jay Lethal, and. People were, hey, look, Ric Flair's working out. You know, it was impressive. He he took a few bumps. I mean, Ric Flair's 72 years old and taking some bumps, working out. Good for him, right? Don't think much of it. But, again, I talk about big news stories. This is another one we're going to pick your guys' brain on. The story came out that at the Jim Crockett Promotions anniversary event coming up in July, Ric Flair, and this isn't dirt sheet, he's confirmed it himself, Ric Flair was not just working out, he was training for an in-ring return. He plans to wrestle one last time at the age of 72 in July. And the big story coming out of that, other than Ric Flair's retirement, is the rumblings that his opponent for that match will also be a veteran coming out of retirement in the form of Ricky Steamboat. I mean, Steamboat Flair, one of the biggest feuds in wrestling history, one of the greatest series of matches in wrestling history. But Jim, I'm going to go to you first because you have an interesting take that might not be the most popular with some of our listeners. Well, what are your thoughts on Flair Steamboat part 75, uh, both men well into the gray age? Uh, Well, first off, let me just say I respect both these guys with the utmost with for what they've accomplished in the ring and everything and the, and the reputation they've got amongst their peers, good stories and bad, you know, I mean, withstanding. Um, at this age, I don't think anyone should be competing in the ring, no matter who it is. I don't think it's a good look. The match is going to be slow. It's not going to be crisp. It's going to be a tarnished shade of what it used to be. But that being said, you also, like, there's only so many people that Flair's going to draw in money with, even if it is his last match. If he, HBK probably would have worked if he wanted to go that route. But I respect the fact that he didn't want to work with the WWE, and he's putting it under the Jim Crockett Promotions banner. And Jim Crockett, those guys are coming out to help promote the show in Nashville. And it is against Steamboat, who is one of the only guys left that's able to work a match that Flair had a good run with. So... That being said, here comes my heelish take on the situation. I'm not a fan of Ricky Steamboat, and I'll tell you why. Ricky Steamboat is amazing athlete, amazing athlete, and stellar reputation amongst his peers. But Ricky Steamboat was the biggest bubblegum babyface worker that I've ever seen just about come down the ring It was, and for me as a heel fan, it just used to make me sick. He would come to the ring with his little kid (laughs) and his wife, and he's got his little kid in a little dragon outfit, and it's just so beautiful and just so precious, it makes you want to vomit. And he just comes down to the ring doing all that, and then never worked as a heel. Like, the guy, I understand that there's a time whenever... He wanted to turn heel, but Ellie Anderson wouldn't let him because he was too over as a baby face. I've heard that story knocked around. 
but he never worked heel. And in my opinion, only the great, only great wrestlers can work both sides of the coin. Um, and again, back to what I was saying before with the gimmickry and just the way, like you could just tell that he was one of those guys that was yes, boss, whatever you need, boss. I'm right there for you, boss. He probably would have volunteered to be in the Vince McMahon kiss my ass club. If he got the opportunity, he brought down to the ring that dragon. He's wrestling Jake the Snake, so I'm going to bring a dragon. He brings this iguana down to the ring. It's just so corny for me and so hokey. And just the, he was just too much of a baby face for me to stomach. And I loved watching the heels stomp the hell out of him. And it just made me so happy. It was the reverse. The reverse. You, most fans love to see the baby face come back and rain down on the heel. Not for me. Not for me, man. It was... It, it, I wish Ricky Steamboat would have got color more often because I would have popped like hell to see him laid out, bleeding like a 70s Dusty Rhodes. Well, yes, I, that's the controversial I, Jim Phillips stance on Ricky the Dragon. For for everyone listening, we, we do thank you for tuning into our last edition of Territory Talk. <laughs> after talking badly about Jim is banned from the show forever. No, uh, oh. I, I want to make one quick correction. I said 72, Ric Flair is 73. 73. And uh, I, I want to get all, it's not supposed to be a singles match. They, they keep saying Steamboat is going to be one of the competitors. The rumor is that it's going to be a multi-man match involving of all teams because they just had a huge tag team match at a recent anniversary show. There are rumblings that, that it could also involve FTR and the rock and roll express because they're, uh, they're, they're slated to retire at the Crockett events as well. So See, now you have fish hooked me. With the addition of those four men, now I, now this is a match well, that I want to. I, I mean, I, I'll tell you, before. I I think you could, like you said, a plotting slow match, but but think about say Flair and FTR against Ricky Steamboat and the Rock and Roll Express. That that you could have a ma- a match. Maybe Rick Flair's in the ring. There. Yeah, Rick Flair's in the ring for maybe two minutes tops. Takes one bump. You know, hopefully he doesn't flip over the turnbuckle, but. Uh, one bump. Benny, what do you thought think about this uh, upcoming spectacular? I really think it, a lot of it depends on how it's booked. Like, I, as everybody knows, I'm a huge baseball fan. And I'm, I'm, I'm going back into the 60s. And one of the most popular events <clears throat> at Yankee Stadium was Old Timers uh, Day. And so, you know, you're talking like in, in 1966, you're bringing back maybe like Bill Dickey, who played on Murderer's Row. In the in the nineteen twenty seven yeah on the nineteen twenty seven Yankees, and he's probably about Flair's age right now, you know, early seventies. So and you watch these guys play ball, and it was you know it was, it was you got the warm and fuzzies. These are the all time greats, but you knew that they couldn't compete in a real game. You know, a, 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 you know if if uh, Clayton Kershaw was pitching against uh, Willie Mays now, I mean, what would be the, what would the chances be that Willie could even get a foul tip? I mean, I, I love Willie Mays, but you know, if you present it as nostalgia, then maybe you can get away with it. But if you're if you're selling this thing as a legit wrestling match, I mean, I'm not buying it. You're sliding down the razor's edge between warm and nostalgic and old and pathetic. Right. So there's, it's going to cut one way or the other. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. I, I will say that whole weekend, they have the... Uh, the the Crockett anniversary show they're having a some kind of a charity function Friday because the, the roast yeah Rick I was about Flair. to say Friday night they're slated to have the roast of Ric Flair uh, that with would be good. 
Conrad Thompson, who, you know, not to, not to shout out to the competition, but I, I think he'll do fine in that spot. And I love a lot of the stuff he does. Um, but it's, it's going to be interesting to see. I just wanted to talk about that before we get too far into the show, because those are, those are really, I mean, we're recording this as the 17th of, of May and those are huge stories that have been, if you Google wrestling right now, probably top two, three things that are going to come up, Sasha, Naomi, Ric Flair retirement. And, and they're both fascinating stories because they do kind of tie back into some of the mentality that we're going to talk about with the territories. Exactly. But getting back to the, the, the topic of today, where this is part two of our Mid-South talk. We, we start, obviously last week, we was a lot of fun. Um, you mentioned Jim in your story, you talked about Bill Watts long-term storytelling. So let me start first question to you, obviously is, uh, 19, 1970s, 1980s. Why would someone run in the circuit of the territories? Put me in that mindset. Why, if you're a 1980s territory guy, do you want to go work for Bill Watts? To simply put it, if you're going to college, you want to go to Harvard you know, or one of those top Ivy League schools. Mid-South was an Ivy League school for professional wrestling, man, as far as learning the product. And if you were good and you earned the respect to watch, you got pushed. And then you learned what that side of things was about. And, and the long-term storytelling is something that's a lost art to be able to bird feed the fans and keep them wanting to come back for more and more and more and seeing the same two guys fight different matches in different ways and the specialty matches. And, but yeah, it's uh, the long-term storytelling is just something you don't see anymore. And we can quote back to, we were talking before with Mr. Wrestling two and TA, how they did that. And it went all the way back to the, where they were the tag team and they were getting humiliated by the midnight express. And then, TA and two, two found out TA was going to get pushed when he thought he should be getting pushed. And this stuff, it did, it wasn't just every week. This is stuff that they played out maybe once or twice a month. You would get another piece of the story. It wasn't like on a raw where you're going to get, you know, I mean, new stories going to unfold one or two episodes every week. You might only get one or two new bits of the story every month. And it just kept the thing hot. People coming back for more. Yeah, it's it's something you don't see anymore. It's sad. The WWE, like we were talking about earlier, they could sorely and surely use it. But for guys that were working the territories, man, Watts is going to be a good payday, and he's running a stern ship, and there's going to be, as long as you're producing and you're bringing to the table your end of the log, you're not really going to have to put up with a bunch of bullshit. I don't know that Watts was one of the best payoff guys. You hear about different guys that will hit, you know what I mean, that are paying out good. Bosch was always a good payout guy that you heard about. Graham was always a good payout guy that you heard about. I never heard anything bad about Watts, so he must not have been stingy with the with the money. Right. You know what I mean? So there's all these things that you look for. The travel schedule, yeah, it's going to be kind of brutal, but my God, the the list of guys and the lineage and just the to be able to put that pin on your lapel. I was I got to run in mid south. You know what I mean? And especially 80 to 86 Mid-South when it meant something, you know, 80 to 85 especially. Jim, I don't think people realize just how creative Bill Watts was. So uh, there was a guy named George Gray, who you actually uh, mentioned last week as Crusher Broomfield, and he's squashing a couple of baby faces. And Watts exclaimed, he's just like a one-man gang. 
you know, hence the birth of the one man gang and, and, and the, the rest is history. He created the, the fabulous Freebirds. Uh, he gave JYD the name, uh, well, his name. He was what Sylvester Sylvester Fritter, yeah, right? That whole gimmick, and then he created this this huge angle where the Freebirds, I guess, blinded JYD uh, right at the time of the birth of his first son, and they played it off as you know JYD couldn't even see his new baby. The and heat, about, my God, the heat that the Freebirds got off that they had to be escorted to and from the ring by armed police. You know but, what I mean? In the New Orleans area, especially, they were. I don't think you can get vilified much more than that. And yeah, the way Watts did, he gave like a sweet daddy Ritter. I think something, something like that was. Yeah, so that's the Ritter, sweet daddy Ritter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, like Bill Watts gave him all that—the junkyard dog gimmick, everything, the chain. And in the beginning of the gimmick, he used to push a shopping cart to the ring. It was like it looked like a hardcore match, and it was his. it was his uh, dog card or whatever it was. I can't remember the dog. I can't remember the exact uh, terminology that they used as trash card or something like that. Or is uh, it was yeah. And he would come down and push it to the ring and but and he junkyard dog made money off that gimmick the rest of his career. The rest of his career, you know what I mean. And he was given it. It was like early on in his career, he made a whole his whole livelihood in the wrestling business came out of that that what watts did and then like you say the free birds he brought together he brought together jim Cornette and the midnight express which can be argued by i'll argue with anybody that they're in the top five tag teams greatest tag teams ever you know what i mean yeah so, I, I think it's in, i'm sorry to cut you off no no you saying, go ahead i think it's important to note too of all the famous tag teams when Condry left and stan lane came in the Midnight Express didn't miss a beat. I never, you never see a tag team replace a member, and it, some would even argue get better. And of course, the Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express, that feud which Bill Watts started that spilled over into Jim Crockett and other promotions was the highest grossing feud on the indies for years and the territories for years. I mean, a tag team main event is unheard of today. And back then, Midnight Rock and Roll could sell out Coliseums, 30,000, 40,000 people, no questions asked to see a tag team feud. I think it's important to note the the power he had in the long-term history of wrestling by pairing two guys who, I mean, let's be honest, put yourself in the mind of a booker who, who looks at, at, at those guys who looks at some of those guys like you were talking about you know benny mentioned one man gang junkyard dog you know who i'm looking at my my pictures on my wall here you know uh, who looks at at Condry and eaton and goes you know what you two guys need to work together and be be heels with uh, uh a little sniveling weasel of a manager uh with a tennis racket and mommy's money you know who who gets that visual unless you're not lack of a better term a visionary yeah, Watts had the eye for a lot of guys say that people and bookers have the eye for talent. They have the eye for talent. Watts had the eye for potential. He could see what guys could be. You know what I mean? Like that and not necessarily what they might have, but if he sometimes the they're greater than the sum of their parts. The Midnight Express is a perfect example of this. You know, and Watts saw that, you know, and just like we were talking with the Russians that we talked about last time with Crush, Crusher Khrushchev. He saw all that too coming with the 80s and 
the with the Rocky Four movie that was out and the Rambo and everything else. He Watts knew how to market on Americana, and man, the eighties was the time to get it in. Jim, in, in your story um, about Mid South on Pro Wrestling Stories, you mentioned that for a territory really to to draw people, it had to have three things. One was a talented roster. Two was creative booking, and three was a solid broadcast team. And we've talked a lot about the stars that they had. I mean, they were stacked and loaded as far as a talented roster. And we're talking about the booking now. Um, was was Watts? Would you say he was a an Eddie Graham disciple as far as booking and storylines? I would say anybody that drew good money with Eddie in Florida got a chance to see what he was really all about. And you hear. Uh, we were talking, we talked a little bit before the show. I was talking to you about the Briscoe Bradshaw guys. You Brad, or Briscoe was all the time talking about Eddie Graham and the long finishes in the stories and stuff like that. Now, maybe a 22-minute match, but it's a 20-minute finish. It's like there was, it was like stacking up dominoes to knock them down to get that ooh moment. Every little domino means something else. And if you didn't stack them up and line them up just the way Eddie wanted, he let you know about it. But when you did, it was something spectacular. So all the people that went through that school of training and and worked that type of match and had that type of association with the business through Eddie, I think came out better in the long run with their product whenever they opened up their own territories and promotions, you know? I mean, Dusty Rhodes is another guy. Look at his experience and all the time he spent in Florida. And then fast forward to... Not everything he did was gold, I mean, but, like, he was behind some of the greatest things that happened in the 90s, you know? Talk, so. talk about Watts bringing Ernie Ladd, who was one of my all-time favorite heels. He brought him in to help with the booking. Ernie Ladd was another one of those guys we talked about last time. I called Watts a journeyman wrestler, and that meant something back in the territorial days more so than it does now because now you don't have any place to journey to, really unless it's the top two or three brands. But back in the day, you would go to a territory, you would get over however you were going to get over, baby face or heel, whichever way you knew to work best, draw your money to its potential, and then move on. And usually it was at the in Mid-South. We'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk about this with the different angles, but there was always an angle where you could leave town or, or you know I mean, you were just ashamed to be around or whatever. Like, there was different ways of getting out of the territory. But... Ernie Ladd was one of those guys that was a unique commodity. He was a big guy, and he worked that big guy match. He worked against Andre and these other big guys. And so he drew money all across the country, and he knew what drawing money was about. And he was another guy that knew how to maximize somebody's talent potential. You know, like there's – I don't want to – I we keep mentioning other play, other things, but I'm a history of the, of the business, and I listen to so many different things. And you hear Cornette tell the Ernie Ladd podcast where – He's talking to Bundy, and he's like, Bundy, come sit down under the learning tree. Learning tree. Yeah, yeah. So, like, it's like you know that those were the guys that you wanted in your territories, those guys that knew what was going on and were willing to share what was going on to make everybody else around them better. So it only lends itself naturally that he would be a booker once he got back from making the rounds. And he worked through Mid-South as a worker, and then he, I think he finished up his actual wrestling working run up in new york if i'm not mistaken and after he got after he finished up up there with vince and those guys then he went back to watts and became booker and started doing working as you know I me mean, part-time pencil 
and being on the road, kind of in a Grizzly Smith type of, you know, I mean, capacity, keeping an eye on every night show, letting Watts know, hey, this match went this way, this match went that way, these guys are up, these guys are down, whatever. You know what I mean? You hear these stories. So Ladd was just one of those guys that was had the reputation of knowing the business and he could be trusted to do business, but he would also tell you if something was the shits. Because that one of the reasons he got into heat in the NFL when he was a football player was because if I remember the story correctly, I believe that he felt slighted or the, some of the guys felt slighted about the treatment that they got in the around the Saints football organization. And he tried to organize a walkout amongst some of the players. And that drew him some heat with the NFL organization as far as being a rabble rouser. But it's interesting that that happened in New Orleans because that was one of the cornerstone cities of the Mid-South market, you know. So maybe even as a wrestler, he had heat through that in New Orleans area. I don't know, but Ernie Ladd's one of the greatest. And yeah, come sit under the learning tree. And then <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite quotes ever was whenever he said, to Bundy, you're dumbing yourself right out of the business. You're dumbing yourself right out of the money. So, yeah, it's, I love to hear stuff like that. Anything anything about the old days was great. And early, Ernie Ladd was one of the originals, man. And bad knees and the plight of the big man was what cost him his wrestling career. That's why he – finally finished up if i'm not mistaken he's always a good interview too because uh ernie lad's one of the first in the business i remember that would always drop the third person you know he he would always drop his hit you know uh uh what, what do you think about this well ernie lad thinks that we got you know i loved i loved the third person references i i always always a good interview ernie lad was the only person in entertainment that called more people dummy than Ernie Ladd was Fred Sanford. <laughs> you big dummy. You dummy. And I think uh, I do believe in the research that I read that uh, this would not go over today, but I believe he, he called out Wahoo McDaniel as a drunken Indian in Jim Crocker promotions. And that would not happen today, my friends. You cannot get away with these things today. But yeah. the big dummies, no. yeah, you big dummy. Yeah, that uh, shit cracks me up. Just the the freedom that they had with their interviews, you know, just the the freedom of all that rang sang of the territories and rang of that goodness. <laughs> yeah, you you you'd see it, and it's always fun the little side things. But you talked a lot about booking. Um, another question related to booking, especially creative booking, was the gimmick matches. A lot of the territories were famous for those, and you mentioned a few last week. The biggest one, obviously, in the territory days as you rotated out was the loser leaves town match or the loser you know, uh, goes home matches, things like that. Uh, talk about Watts and how, how Mid-South used gimmick matches. They used them to perfection is the simple re re reply to that question. And we could go back to Junkyard Dog just a second ago. He was one of the biggest ever was whenever Ted DiBiase fought Junkyard Dog. They had the loser leaves town match. The Junkyard Dog leaves town and he's going to do other little commitments elsewhere as JYD. But while he's all doing that away from Mid-South, Stagger Lee comes into town. And then it was the big thing about his junkyard dog, Stagger Lee, and all this stuff. And it was even more obvious than the Hulk Hogan, Mr. America baloney. There was no doubt it was junkyard dog. It was They wanted you to know that it was junkyard dog. They weren't trying to hide nothing. like. But 
the they played that so well and then they did the whole stagger lee bit and then they would do uh every once in a while like watts was so big on machonus and manliness he would do these he would show like a couple of different times he did weightlifting exhibitions where he would show like tony atlas doing bench presses and shit and you would see stagger lee and junkyard dog in the same frame and it was like it's not like they were saying anything about that angle but just having them together on that picture without saying anything just push that angle even more oh they're 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 together though they must not be the same guy they're the same guy and then it was so great and ted dibiase had the black glove that was the black like the big where he had the big heavy-handed right hand like the blackjack mulligan glove angle that they ran later on to um Man, it was such good stuff. And the Loser Leaves Town match, they utilized that just as good as anybody. But I remember one distinctly that we haven't talked about, so here's one for you guys. It was a coal miners glove match. And it was a match between uh, Crusher Darso before he was uh, Crusher Khrushchev, whenever he was still wearing the like the Beverly Hillbillies. It was so bad. <laughs> if you think the Red Rooster was bad, like, and it wasn't, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a rib punishing the guy. It was just poor choice. It was terrible. I'm so glad that he got away from that. But anyway, he was, I, and it slips my mind now who he was fighting. I want to say J, uh, Jim Dugan, Jim Duggan. And uh, that's uh, Bill Watts would have had a field day calling that match by mispronouncing the damn names. But they had the glove match actually had strips of steel on it. And it was a big leather glove, looked like a big welder's glove. And they put it on the pole and it was like the classic glove on the pole match. But they got so much color in Mid-South. I, we mentioned this last time as well. They, was, they were constantly going to the color, man. And like Dugan and uh, I'm calling him Dugan now. Dugan and, and uh, Darso were just just a crimson mask of old man, just bloody from the match to the point that they couldn't show it anymore. And Darso had the glove on his hand because he won. He was standing there being interviewed by Bill Watts and he was all victorious. And then they were showing Duggan kicking the hell out of him to get the glove. But then whenever he got the glove and he was beating Duggan, they said that it was too violent to show. So they broke away and Bill Watts was like, we can't show anymore because of the violence. And Darso was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was just about to get going there. And he was, this that type of stuff it was so so wonderful and then my god the the feathers the tarn feathers who who else was doing that they did that to the midnight express did that to magnum ta butch reed did that to the junkyard dog who else did they tar and feather by paul orndorff i'm pretty sure got tar and feathered in his run or early on there was another guy that had a great run that was a great talent that went through mid-south early on before he really got picked up by vince um yeah it's so so much good stuff and then the flag matches and everything else yeah bill watts knew man he knew how to how to really in he knew how to get your attention you you said it you said dugan before we get any further Benny, uh, Jim, we were talking about this before we started recording. We have to mention the pronunciations in the announcing. Oh, my God. Yeah, go ahead. You guys got to oh, have Jim, so, you know, one of your your uh, tripod, one of the legs of your tripod of greatness for a territory is the announce team. And, you know, we could we, everybody's talked about JR, but I really want to hear you talk about Boyd Pierce because I think Boyd Pierce – is one of the most underrated announcers of all time. We could talk about both of those things in the same conversation because Boyd Pierce 
he didn't butcher names as bad as as Bill Watts did. But man, Boyd Pierce, he threw out his share of Dugans and Darso's. Need hearts. Yeah, Darso's. Yeah, <laughs> but Boyd Pierce started out with McGurk in uh, at Tri-State before Bill Watts ever took over. He was announcing for them back then, and he was kind of like a area celebrity because he worked for Paul Bosch as ring announcer for a while down in Houston too for his NWA territory. So Boyd Pierce was a well-known personality, and then we keep, we have to talk about sometimes quite literally the elephant in the room with Boyd Pierce was his clothing. Oh, he, yeah. <laughs> the man had, uh, yeah, he was full of flash. I don't know where he got those suits, but yeah, it's one of the, I remember whenever Cornette would come into the ring for the Midnight Express, Boyd Pierce would be out there to introduce him, and Cornette would always take the mic away. And I remember specifically on one episode, he looked at Boyd Pierce and he goes, I see you dressed in the dark again, Boyd Pierce. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, Boyd Pierce would stand there and just give Cornette this stare at him with just this scathing stare and just not say nothing and then just take his microphone back and leave out of the ring with this nice, quiet respect. But, yeah, you could just tell that they sold the fact that everybody hated Cornette. And then we talked about it, too. Boyd Pierce was – he cackled and laughed so much it makes me smile. Every time I that, – that scene when Cornette gets his face smashed into that cake – you can just hear Boyd Pierce in the background, and then they cut away and show him and Bill Watts at the announce table, and they're just fucking laughing their asses off. But Boyd Pierce grew up around sports and made a name for himself locally in that area before Mid-South kicked and took off. I think I don't think he was into sports casting as far as football and stuff as deep as Jim Ross was, but I'm, I know that he did some of that as well. But he was definitely well-known on the NWA circuit as a ring announcer, and then he came into the commentating with uh, Bill Watts. But, yeah, Bill Watts, I don't know if they did the shit on purpose or not. But, yeah, he would say Dugan and, like, he was oh, the crowds chanting Dugan, Dugan, Dugan. And then uh, he would uh, – one of my favorites is he said that it's mesmerized, right? But he was talking to Boyd Pierce and he was trying to explain about how great the – the match was that he saw and he said he was mesmerized. Mesmerized, yes, sir. Mesmerized. And he said that a few times. And then the uh, macabre instead of macabre. It's the macabre. It was a macabre scene. And and uh, subterfuge, that's another Bill Watts favorite term. It was a matter of subterfuge between the, the two of them and all this shit. But, yeah, he was – I was one – I – I want to tell a story, and I tried to remember last time, and it slipped my mind, too. It's just part of getting older, I guess. But there was a – I want to say it was Dugan, but there was a guy that uh, – Skandor Akbar was guest announcing with Boyd Pierce, to make a long story short, and they, he kept mispronouncing the guy's name. And he mispronounced the name like ten times during the match. And instead of calling him by his first name, he kept calling him by the last name. And I swear to God, I think it was a rib amongst the boys to see how many times Akbar could mispronounce his name in one match. I, it had to have been because he just kept hitting it over and over. He could have made a drinking game out of it. Well, wasn't uh, d- during during some of their interactions, Scan- uh, wasn't Skander Akbar's big thing, uh, uh, Ted, Ted Dubasse? That's the one. That's the one. It wasn't Dugan. It was Ted. He kept calling him DBS. DBS. Yeah. Yeah. Ted DBS. That's the one, my brother. Thank you for helping me remember that. That was the one. 
Yes, yes, yes. Ted DiBias. But that's another guy that really doesn't, like, for years, 80, 81, 82, 83, Akbar was the main heel stable manager. And if there was a bad guy, there was Akbar that brought in the gang out of, in early 80s, out of ICW before he went and, you know I mean, had his run down in Texas. So, yeah, there was, yeah, that, that was so great. Yeah, Akbar was good, man. He would bounce around the ring. He was a bumping heel manager, too. He would bounce all over the place. And outside the ring, he'd get so mad if something didn't go his way in the ring. He'd kick the ring steps and kicking the, the chairs and shit and out there raising hell and calling in four or five other guys to come beat the hell out of the baby face like some kind of maniacal conductor out there on the outside of the ring, swinging his arms. And, oh, it was... You, there's no if, if you love wrestling, and I'm talking about real old school wrestling, there's no way that you can watch Mid South and not enjoy yourself. It just fucking hooks you right in, man. Absolutely. Uh, one thing you mentioned, Jim, in your story was the fact that Watts was really innovative and ahead of his time, especially being in the South. Uh, of of Using African-American wrestlers. I mean, you mentioned already centerpieces, the Junkyard Dog. We talked about Hacksaw Butch Reed. Uh, you meant Earlier tonight, you mentioned bringing in Ernie Ladd. Um, I, I kind of want you to expand on that because it, it, do you think, feel that's surprising, uh, especially considering the story of Watts getting canned from other promotions, or uh, excuse me, another promotion for some insensitive marks he made that apparently upset Hank Aaron? Yeah, we could talk about the WCW incident as well. Um, Watts came from a product of the times and a part of the country where, and you can't make excuses for it, but it was a reality of life. Racism, even latent racism was there. We all know it was there. Watts was one of the good old boys. There's no telling how many times he let something fly off the handle or made some off-color remark or quip in amongst you know what I mean? A group of people and somebody else may have heard it, which is the what happened with the WCW remark. I think Watts was a smart enough businessman and to know his demographic. And he was Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi. You know, like you got the fact that he pushed black champions was only smart on his part for drawing money because the more evil, bad heel characters that you can roll through to beat up their local hometown buddy and their local hometown boy is only going to draw that much more money for you. Now, as far as the WCW thing goes, Watts went back to after he, everything with the UWF and all that came to an end, he went to WCW working as booking agent and one of the head guys there. I think that Everybody wants to say that he was running the show for a while, and while he may have sat in that chair, it was a corporation, and Watts's hands were bound to a certain by a certain extent for some things. He pushed Ron Simmons as the first African American world champion, so you can't say that the guy wasn't progressive thinking. You can't just totally shit on Bill Watts, but a conversation or something that he said in an interview that Mark Madden rehashed and unearthed and brought to the attention of Hank Aaron. I don't know that he like called Hank Aaron on the phone and stooged Watts out over it, but Hank Aaron saw this and that's what put a bee in his bonnet. I'm not sure the exact verbiage that was said, so I don't want to go out on that limb, but it was enough that 
Hank Aaron is a member of the Braves franchise, which was a Ted Turner organization, pushed to have Bill Watts removed from the corporation itself and did. So there must have been something that made them feel plenty uncomfortable about what was going on. But those guys, man, Turner Broadcasting changed bookers like you change socks in those days. And sometimes you got, in the case of Jim Hurd, you got a seven-year-old pair of rotten gym socks that wasn't worth a shit to begin with that didn't, you know what I mean? But every once in a while, you got a good person in there. Watts was great. He had a good mind for everything. Now, that let's all segue into something. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you just brought up Jim Hurd. You mean to tell me you don't think Bill Watts would have been on board with rebranding Ric Flair as Spartacus? Oh, my God. The fact that Jim Hurd was station manager at KPLR and came out of St. Louis and was a friend of Sam Munchnik, and that was my home market growing up, is always a stake in my heart because it always makes me feel like Jim Hurd kind of came from the fold that I grew up around. So it always left a bad taste in my mouth as someone who grew up with wrestling at the Chase and the St. Louis Wrestling Club to think that Jim Hurd parlayed that into running WCW always left me kind of crappy on that but what i was going to say what i was going to segue into as far as watts being at wcw another thing that really didn't garner him any favor with the boys at that time which probably i don't know that he had would have had too many people jumping in his boat to help him bail the water other than ron simmons and those guys was the fact that he wanted to push his son so much uh talking about eric watts um the professional wrestling business is known for its nepotism and not every son is a good thing in the business just because their father was. We could quote examples of this all day long. George Goulas probably being the worst son of Nick Goulas, the promoter from Nashville back in the day. Uh, Greg Gagne was okay as long as he had a partner, son of Vern Gagne. But Eric Watts, man, fundamentally in his like collegiate and high school wrestling, I understand he did very well. But he was the Drizzlers, man, when it come to being on that screen. No charisma, just didn't want to watch him, didn't want to look at him. And then Watts wanted to get behind him and push him. I think it was, what, the TV title or something like that that they were pushing him for? He had an angle with Arn Anderson where they had this fight in a gas station parking lot. It was one of the worst off-site vignettes I think I've ever seen as far as believability. It's horrible. And, like, I know I know Arn can get down because I remember watching them break Dusty's arm at the Four Horsemen, break Dusty's arm in the parking lot in his pickup truck. So I know Arn knows how to work an off-site. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, I, I know. But that, man, with Eric Watts, it was just terrible. It was so bad. But... I understand that not everybody in the locker room appreciated the fact that Bill Watts wanted to push him when they knew he was the shits. <laughs> so that wasn't winning him any favors in the locker room at that time. I'm not sure if the worst part of that whole vignette was Arn Anderson's Zubaz that he was wearing <laughs> or, or the fact that, that Eric Watts applied an STF at a gas station. In the you're gas, at a gas station, station you're, you're, you know, you're going to knock somebody over the head with a gas pump. You're not going to. Who's going to do an STF? Hey, but goes for the submission hold in the in the wet. Gas it, yeah, at Phillips 66. So, I mean, <laughs> do, do you think it was more of, uh, I mean, truly it was nepotism? Do you think Watts didn't have, uh, Eric didn't have enough seasoning? 
for because he was a legitimate athlete. He's a, a quarterback for the Louisville Cardinals. So I mean, he did have the the athletic credentials. Do you think it was just he didn't have the it factor, or they pushed him too quick? What do you think it was? I think a lot of those guys, and I think it, it with all three of the guys that I mentioned, have, have suffered from it to, from to a certain extent. Their dad's in a position of power, so they don't have to work as hard. You know, they're not putting in those extra efforts that everybody else is putting in. That's hungry and and wanting to get the money and that wants to be on top. They're expecting to be on top. And I can only imagine the how George Goulas was to be around because he was more than horrible. And there was a, recently on a podcast I was listening to, I can't think if it was corny or not, but was talking about how George Goulas was running a promotion in Nashville, and it was all the matches that he was talking about on the card, and it was like all the matches listed under a picture of George Goulas in a referee outfit. You know what I mean? It's like, what the fuck? What are you doing, man? You know, and but Ganya, Ganya was at least athletic and could hold his own in a tag team. But yeah, man, uh, Eric Watts. But the nepotism thing is not nothing uncommon. Like if you go back to Mid South, we talked about this last week as well. Eric's older brother Joel was not only a referee, but a part-time commentator and ring announcer, and he did the music montages for the different wrestlers and stuff. So I guess it's natural to want to push your kids and to have a blind speck in your eye that your kid might be the shits, but you think he's the greatest, you know what I mean? I guess I don't have kids, so I don't know about that anchor that sinks you to the bottom of the ocean. So I don't know about those things. I don't know about those handicaps. But I guess if you had a kid, you would think that. You know, it does work out once in a while. I mean, you have, uh, you know, Jerry Jarrett with Jeff. I mean, Jeff was a legit talent. But then you got, you know, you got the Goulases of the world and you got the David San Martinos, who he did have the talent. I I don't think he had that. He wasn't Bruno. That was his problem. I think that David knew that he wasn't Bruno. If you want to talk about that, we can. I've got opinions on that. I mean, I think David David knew that he wasn't Bruno. David didn't have the hunger for the business and the fans didn't have the hunger for David. Right. That was like, you got, if you're going to be over, you got to be over. And he just wasn't over, man. Like he wasn't not the way his Papa was. And even fans, like, I don't know. You kind of, whenever you see a junior or somebody that's the son of a wrestler, a lot of times guys wanted to cover that up because they would get that look out the corner of the eye. Oh yeah. We'll see how this goes. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. people in the business and fans almost expect them to be less because of the greatness of who their father may have been. You know what I mean? Yeah. Look here, uh, Barry O, you know, wrestled as Barry O and not Barry Orton. Yeah. I mean, you see that too, I think, um, along with the kind of the, the fluctuation of how you want to push for lack of a better term yourself as a solo act. I think in recent years, you've seen that with, uh, we were talking top of the hour. We talked about Ric Flair, you know, Charlotte, she drops, she's Charlotte and Charlotte Flair interchangeably, depending on whether or not they want to mention how much they want to mention. She's Ric Flair's daughter. Same thing, uh, with like Tamina, obviously there was, you know, during the, the, when news of the, uh, the re the dark side of the ring and stuff like that, they kind of dropped, her name. Um, I, I, it's a shame what happened to him because he was phenomenal, but Richie steamboat didn't, 
he didn't wrestle too much under that under that name. And, uh, you know, you, I mean, there's there's other examples, I think, like you were talking about um, Sim Snuka is probably another one. Mm-hmm. And obviously, uh, how many times I mean, I hate to say it, but look at one of the better examples of, of the last 20 or so years is Yokozuna. They completely ignored his Samoan heritage and made him Japanese and never once referenced, oh, look at all these other people on the roster that he's related to. Do you honestly, I think that was for the better for him, though. I think yeah. that I think that the gimmick that they gave him was the perfect thing for him. You know what I mean? And the Coquina matches and stuff whenever he was younger, you see him moving in the ring with the speed and the agility. But as he got bigger, that Yokozuna gimmick was perfect for him. But you talk about families and the marketability of being the son of a wrestler. The flip side of that coin is the Lucha Libre world. You get into CMLL and down there, and it's money to be the son of a of a pro wrestler. You know what I mean? Like the Rey Mysterio Juniors and the the El Santos and all these guys the, the, right. I mean, that had the the number two or the junior or whatever that came in, you know what I mean? Penta, all these guys, you know, it's uh, like, it's, it's a badge of honor down there. You know what I mean? More so I think than it is in the American market. I think in the American market, it's recognized more so than, than like you're automatically given that pat on the back. You know, I think in maybe in this market, it's, it's more so the other direction. It's an interesting topic. Yeah, I can see that. Benny, as we, uh, approach the end of the hour as we wrap up uh any final thoughts questions yeah i want to i want to go around the horn here and, and do your mount rushmore of territories so i'm going to say wwwf memphis mid-south and cwf okay okay i'll take uh mid-south florida georgia and uh man it's hard to to pick that fourth one for me, man, you know, I would have to go Jim Crockett just because of everything that's spun out of there. But there's so many little interchangeable fourth pieces that you could put with those other three to make it great. I can respect that. Obviously I'm kind of with you, Jim, I would say Florida, Georgia, mid South. And this is just me being a kid watching the old tapes, but my fourth would be WCCW. Okay. Okay. I respect that and Memphis. I respect Memphis a lot too. Those Mem- Memphis is a good one. I would honestly, I would uh, flip a coin with uh, Florida and Memphis, but I I saw more of of you know the bigger picture of what Florida influenced versus Memphis just being phenomenal. You know, you you didn't. I don't know. I, my my opinion, like I said, I, I just think Florida just gets hair a hair ahead in my mind. But, really but you're is, talking you're talking a, a final score of of 21 to 20 and a half, you know, hardly <laughs> a blowout. Memphis had so many off the wall monster heels. You know, just so many like the Humongous and the Sasquatch guy and just so many off the wall monsters. The Friday the 13th Leatherface the, guy the, even the, I think the, made a run the through there. Creature. Yeah, those they would, yeah, they, those guys would, would try just about anything, man. And you got to respect that to a certain extent. And Lawler would put it over. <laughs> uh, there was uh, a point, peak, peak Memphis. The, the, the show could have been two hours of Jerry Lawler in the ring 
uh, like li- just setting the ring up and cleaning it, and I'm pretty sure they would have sold 15,000 tickets. If I could, like, I grew up watching St. Louis and ICW because I lived in that little I-64 corridor right there that you always hear about. But whenever Savage and the Popos were forcibly doing the 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 like the invasion promos and they were out there in Lance Russell's face and Lance Russell had that look on his face like he just didn't want to have nothing to do with it. <laughs> and they were out there going crazy. Randy Savage was out there going nuts, bashing the picture frame in his head and all this shit. That was one of the, my favorites of Memphis. I mean, you can't discount the the Andy Kaufman stuff, but the Poffo invasion only to get themselves over because they weren't booked to come in there and do that. They weren't, they forced that all that stuff on those guys. Like once Lawler and those guys saw the marketability and the money in those matches, they went ahead and set them up. But they was on, I remember being on ICW television talking about it as a kid, how they were going to go to Memphis and they were going to get a match with Jerry Lawler and they were going to, it was going to be a world title match and all this shit. And like, they were just, they were just calling that shit on the fly and making it up as they went along, man. It was, Great awesome. stuff. And that goes to the point, Benny, you made when we had the episode on Memphis. You know, Andy Kaufman could have gone anywhere in the country and been a huge story, and he chose Memphis. So, you know, he, he knew he knew where the crowds were going to be hot, and he knew where to go. But it's like you said, the same thing. You had a talented roster, a very talented roster. You had very good creative booking, and you had an announcer, Lance Russell, who to me was like right up there with Gordon Soley as one of, as the best ever. We would have to throw, I want to throw a fourth variable in there that wasn't in the article in weekly TV. Huge, huge yes, absolutely. Huge difference maker. If you had that huge yep. difference maker. Oh, okay. Well then let me, let me throw this to you guys since I, I would say Memphis would be my fifth. So let's cheat and let's give everybody a fifth. Benny. If I have a fifth, I'm actually going with WCCW. Okay. Uh, well, the old ICW stuff was what I grew up on, and it was really good, and I saw so many of those in person. I would have to either go ICW or or maybe Portland. Don Owens and the boys. Yep. yep. Piper in Portland was, was huge. Yeah, I as played far with as Buddy Rose. Buddy Rose. Yep. Yeah. As far as talent goes. Well, Jim, um, again, another fun walk down memory lane. Our, our territory talks are always great. Uh, what what does the future hold for you? What, what, what can we expect to see coming up? I'm in the process right now of finishing up the territory that we were talking about last week. I'm not going to give no spoilers. you got to wait for it. you got to wait for it. But um, on, a, on another side note, I also do these videos that are like food videos called the the universal yums and i get them in once a month and i went to the mail today and the universal yums had showed up today and it's from great britain so i got a little box of great britain snacks and treats that i'll be making a video about later and taste testing a few of those and that's always a fun time you never know for sure what you're going to get <laughs> wait wait a minute now i've i've traveled to england a few times if, if it's a box of snacks it's more like universal eh. yeah a lot of chips I saw yeah. some, there's a lamb I mean, and rosemary chip I, in there. I will say, as a as a fat boy myself, England's the only place I've ever seen a vending machine, and all the candies in there were Cadbury. Like oh, that was wow. that was nice too. You know, 
uh, A3 was a Cadbury bar instead of Hershey. You know, it was nice to see that. That's what's up. Yeah, I could get down with that, too. But, yeah, that's, that's always a fun time when the Universal Yum shows up because, yeah, like I say, there's always – there's every once in a while you'll get one that's, like, canned ass, but most of the time that's it's pretty good. <laughs> most of the time it's pretty good. But riding season is full on right now. I'm riding the motorcycle as much as I can and enjoying the summer. You know, living life, man. Life's an adventure. You got to get out and enjoy it, brothers. You can't, you can't enjoy it sitting on that damn chair all the time, even though that's where the wrestling's at. <laughs> <laughs> well said. And you got your Universal Yum reviews. Obviously, Jim Phillips, your your articles on ProWrestlingStories.com. Benny, yes. uh, you you've got a lot of good stuff there as well. And so for Jim Phillips, ProWrestlingStories.com, for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Sebastian. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Good night.